you might think, you know, what do I need to understand the Old Testament? And um, is that really necessary? Because, you know, Jesus, New Testament, do we really need the Old Testament? Oh, man. There's so much good stuff in the Old Testament. And unless you really, uh, I, I wouldn't say you have to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament by any means, but um, but it will give you such a greater, fuller picture of the story and the and the the movement of God and what he has done in world history, how he has revealed himself. Uh, I had the privilege of teaching um, as an adjunct professor at a community college, a, just a secular college in uh, North Mississippi, North uh, West Community College, and uh, taught Old Testament survey, New Testament survey there, and would have students come from, a, a lot of times, uh, unfortunately, I was always excited about having like, you know, having students in there that were completely unchurched and had little background, but Probably 80% of the kids would come to class, maybe 85% were Christian kids, supposedly, that wanted to have a better understanding of the Bible. So they came to a secular university's Old Testament survey class, because, of course, you're going to get an unbiased, you know, great, you know, observation of the Old Testament that way. Uh, and uh, somewhat foolish, but nonetheless, uh, fortunately, by God's grace, they, they had a, a professor, which is me, that believed the Bible. And so um, I did my best to teach it academically, but nonetheless to make sure that I um, made sure that they were having a good understanding of, of Scripture. And, um, uh, but what I, what I learned and shocked me is, is the biblical ignorance and illiteracy of um, most professing Christians. They just don't know their Bible, don't have a clue what's, you know, what's where and, and their way through it. And I don't say it in a judgmental mean way. I'm just saying our churches have been pathetic at helping people understand the Word of God and be able to use their Bibles. I mean, they, they, unless people are spoon-fed, nice, cute little uh, messages with three points in a poem and a PowerPoint presentation and whatever, they don't get it. They, you know, unless it's, it's nobody can just sit down and read their, their Bible for themselves and, and understand and hear God speak to them. And so uh, certainly every Sunday we want to be able to come here and I, I'm going to do my best or whoever's teaching that Sunday to, um, to study the Word and have a message from the Lord and, and be able to unpack and teach God's Word and reveal what He's already put there in Scripture. But uh, there's nothing like getting alone with God yourself and open the Bible and let the Creator of the universe speak to you through His Word. Nothing brings change and transformation in a person's life like personal time alone with God. And so our, our goal is to try to hopefully make that a little easier for you as we uh, study God's Word together. I want to read um, a passage of Scripture, Second. Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of majesty when we received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice was born from him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And he goes on, verse 19. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until a day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's, uh, someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. You know, the Bible's written by a bunch of men. There's a bunch of men who got together and wrote the Bible. I've heard that a thousand times, and a lot of people have been fed that line. And, and yeah, it was written, God revealed it through men, but according to this verse, no prophecy was given according to man's own interpretation or, or by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, God's Holy Spirit carried along the authors that, that penned what God had inspired to be written, um, carried them all along in the same way that somebody would get on a ship and they would be carried along from point A to point B. And that's how the Bible was given. That's kind of a simple uh, definition of inspiration of Scripture. God has inspired His Word and he caused what he wanted to be written down, written down. But how do we understand it? God has gifted the world with his words in written form, and he did it this, this way. And Some of this stuff is not going to be on the screen here, but, uh, but just to go over this really quick so you understand the background of, of Scripture. Uh, he used 40 different authors from different occupations, from different educations, much like what's in this room right here. We have different backgrounds, different occupations. Uh, we have different education levels. Um, we have different, all of us have been raised in different, some of us in this area, some from different regions. But imagine us over living over a span of 1,500 years, okay? So beginning at 1400 B.C., that was the first time Scripture was, was written down by Moses, put in pen form, or uh, written down, um, not by pen, but nonetheless written down. 
uh, recorded that, that 1400 BC all the way to the New Testament, which you're talking about, um, uh, the last part of the New Testament, probably the book of Revelation, was written around 95 AD. So you're looking at a span of 1500 years that 30 or 40 different authors are writing that aren't contemporaries. Not like they all got in the room together and said, hey guys, let's go ahead and get some, let's create some crazy religion and let's just come out and we'll come up with this story. This is living over 1500 years. Most of them, not even contemporaries of one another, wrote down um, what God revealed for them to write down. And that's where we have the Bible. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. What are those two? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, with the exception of a few passages that were written in Aramaic. New Testament was written in Greek, or also known as Koine Greek. There's classical Greek and Koine. Koine Greek is uh, common Greek of of the New Testament, biblical Greek. Um, So in other words, if you wanted to study Greek to read the Bible, don't take a classical Greek class because you'll learn a larger vocabulary than is necessary to understand the Bible. Take Koine Greek because it's going to be a smaller vocabulary. Um, And I'm always about the easiest way... um, to get through school. So uh, Hebrews, uh, Old Testament, New Testament written in Greek. Now, um, the word Bible means the book. Biblia means literally just means the book, which is a little bit of a misnomer because really the Bible isn't a book. The Bible is a compilation of uh, 60-something different books, okay? So it's, it's got lots of books put together. We call it the Bible, the book, but it's really lots of books that are compiled together. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, so 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. You put those together, and then you have, that's, that's the Bible. And we're going to talk really about the 39 books of the Old Testament uh, this morning. That's what we're looking at. What was the, the Bible written on? Well, it was all in digital format. Uh, most of it was in WordPerfect, and then they upgraded. I'm kidding. The Bible was written, some of it was written on clay tablets. Some of it was written on stone, Ten Commandments. Some of it was written on papyra, which is paper made out of uh, reeds or grass that grows next to the water. Some of it was written on vellum or calf skin, which is leather, basically. Uh, and some of it was written on metal, I believe, or Exodus 28, 36. There's a little portion written on, on metal. So there's various, that's five different things that, that Scripture was written on that was passed down. Uh, we'll talk at another point. At some point, we'll do some more in depth of that, and we'll talk about how the Word of God has been preserved, because that's a whole other subject we don't have time to get into right now. They had a lady that was big on the Old Testament, and she asked me, do you believe in, um, do, you, do, you, do you teach in your class, actually, do you teach the Tanakh? Tanakh is the way that the Jewish people, Hebrew-speaking people or Hebrew people, would, would view the Old Testament. They would section it off in three groupings, and the, the kind of the acronym for that is the Tanakh, T-A, Torah, Nevaim is the second part, Torah is the law, Nevaim is the uh, prophets, and then the Ketuvim is the writings, or the, um, the hagiographa. Hagio is holy writings. Hagio, holy, grapha, writings. Um, so the hagiographa is the holy writings, and that's the, the set, third section of Scripture. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay? The law, the prophets, and writings. And when Jesus would refer to the Old Testament, he would refer to that in those three sections. But in your Bibles, assuming you have a Bible with you this morning, if you were to flip to the table of contents, which would be good right now, you flip to the table of contents, if you have a Bible, it, the English Bibles are divided into four groups, and that's what we're going to look at briefly, these four groups. Now, what are the four sections of the Bible? Uh, the first section is the first five books, and, and what we're doing this morning is we're gonna, we're gonna, you're going to walk away with the chronology of the Old Testament. In other words, you're going to have an understanding of the order of which these books uh, would have uh, not necessarily been written, but the order of which these events would have taken place that are represented in the books, okay? And so you're going to have a chronology of the order of... So if you wanted to study your Bible chronologically, you wouldn't start in Genesis and read straight through the whole Old Testament because you would get off chronologically. But, uh, but you, so hopefully you're going to have an understanding of, of the flow of how the Old Testament goes. But the way it's sectioned off in your Bible... In English Bibles is in these four groupings. The first one is the Pentateuch. Penta five, uh, Tuch is the law. So it's the five books of the law, Pentateuch, or the Torah would be how the Jewish people would refer to it, or you can call it simply the law. All three of those would be legit descriptions. The Pentateuch is the first book is Genesis. Then we have Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So what you could do in your front of your Bible, and I would encourage you to, to, to do this, um, write in your Bible, and just block off the first five books, and then out next to it, write the law, or the Pentateuch. 
And then the second section we're going to get into is the historical books. So the historical books uh, are Joshua, Judges, Ruth, which is actually taking place in the timeline of Judges. We'll see in a moment. First and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles, which is really a summary of those first two books. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther happened after the exile. We'll get there in a minute. Um, but that's your historical book. So this covers the whole history post the Exodus when they are about to go into the promised land. So it's the history of Israel from the beginning of coming back into the promised land all the way to the, um, the establishing of the kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, to the division of Israel, the north and the south, to the destruction of Israel, where they go into exile, to where they come out of exile in the post-exilic, post-exile period, which is the Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther books. All right, which leads us to the next section of Scripture, and that is the poetry or the wisdom literature, the books of wisdom, wisdom literature, the poetry or poetical books. That's other ways you can refer to it. The poetry of the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, the book of Job is the first in the poetry section, but this is where our chronology gets off in your order if you just roll through the Old Testament because Job was likely a contemporary of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Job would have lived around the same time as Abraham. And so Job, even though you don't find the book of Job till like halfway through your Bible, in reality, you could, if you were putting it chronologically, you would stick Job in the middle of the book of Genesis. You with me? But nonetheless, it's sectioned off Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Uh, psalms written mostly by David, but others uh, also, uh, one, one of the psalms is Moses, um, other psalms by other authors, and then Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon written by Solomon. And then the last section of Scripture is the prophets. And the prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Is that the last one, Obadiah? Did you adjust that? Or is there one? Okay. Uh, and then uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, uh, Zechariah Malachi, who was the Italian prophet. I'm kidding, it's Malachi, it's not Malachi. Just trying to keep you guys awake. Uh, Hosea was a Spanish prophet. Um, Jose, and uh, joking, joking. So here's the prophets. Now, we'll get to the prophets at the end, but, um, but they're not necessarily chronological order. They're actually in length of the books for the most part. Um, and so that's, that's how your Old Testament is sectioned off. All right, so hopefully you put a little bracket and then you put a little word out so now you know the sections of Scripture so you know where to go for what you're reading. Um, now, which brings us to the chronology. So let's jump there and let's look at the first five books of the Old Testament. Here's the goal is that you're going to take the sheet and we'd like to give you a one-word summary of each book. For the, not, we won't get into all the prophets, but most of the major books of the Pentateuch and historical books and even the wisdom literature, a one-word summary of each of these. So at, with one word, you can kind of, here's the big idea of the book. Now, obviously, it's not going to be exhaustive, but at least we'll give you an understanding of what is in that section of Scripture. Which, and then we'll also look at, there's a timeline on there, and we'll fill in the timeline as we go so you can have a little bit of an idea of the flow of, of events as we have them here. Now, the book of Genesis, uh, in the, the Hebrew translation of the title would be In the Beginning, because in the, the Hebrew Bible, they will always refer to a book by the first phrase in the Hebrew language. And so Bereshith was the first phrase, and so it would have been called Bereshith, which, which translated for us as in the beginning. And, um, and so if you were to summarize the book of Genesis, based upon the name Genesis for that matter, a little hint there, it is the book about the beginning. It's a book of creation. So we're going to summarize it. It's called the book of beginning. And if you were to outline it, there's two sections of Scripture. The first the section we'll be studying over the, this fall, and that is the primeval history and then the patriarchal history. So the primeval history begins with creation of uh, the world, creation of man, um, the fall. You have uh, the first you know, sin there. You have the first murder. Um, then you have uh, restoration of God. Um, you know, the sacrificial system begins and some sacrifices that are, are made, the first prophecy of God sending a deliverer that will one day come and, and will uh, deliver us from the, the sins of people, of our, our sins of, of humanity, and will we'll destroy the serpent. That first prophecy is given in Genesis chapter 3. So you have, you have creation, you have the fall, you have the flood. You have the Tower of Babel where they spread out all throughout the, the earth. Uh, in fact, we were at um, Davy Crockett's day, Davy Crockett Day's, 
uh, yesterday over Davy Crockett's birthplace, and they had an instrument. What was the instrument that he talked about that they find? Was it the wasn't the banjo? Oh, different. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a banjo made out of a gourd, which there's variations of that instrument you find in uh, Aztec ruins. You find them in uh, North America. You find them South America. You find them in Europe, Africa, and you find them in uh, Asia. Now, where in the world would everybody get the same idea for an instrument if, unless they all came from the common origin, which they would have been scattered at the Tower of Babel? A little anthropology for you right there. We'll talk about that more when we get to that point in Genesis. But also you look at the, the building of the temples and how Aztec temples and uh, the, um, the pyramids, Aztec temples, the pyramids, and then even a lot of the Asian buildings, with the exception of the roof line that curls up, they all look the same structures. Where do they get the common arch- archaeological, not archaeological, architectural plan for how they built things? Because they all came from the same place, Tower of Babel. So all of that's in Genesis 1 through 11. We'll get there more in the weeks to come. And then the rest of the book of Genesis, 12 through 50, is the patriarchal history, which God calls out of the pagan nations of the world, one guy by the name of Abraham, and sets his affections upon Abraham and tells Abraham to send you to a new land to, um, to establish a new people. And from you, Abraham, who's unable to have children, I'm going to give you a multitude of uh, nation, uh, a multitude of people. Your descendants will outnumber the stars of the sky. So he gives them a son, Isaac, and Isaac, eventually he has um, two sons. Uh, he has Jacob and Esau. Another passage in Romans refers to an Old Testament passage. Jacob I love, Esau I hated. It's two brothers in opposition. Jacob steals the birthright from Esau. And Jacob becomes, even though he was second born, um, when he was born, he came out holding his older brother's ankle, you know, fighting for his place and trying to trick his way into um, b- blessing. And he becomes the, the one who the heir uh, of uh, uh, the prophecies and the promises to Abraham are passed down from Abraham to Isaac, that God is going to establish a nation through these guys. And eventually he's going to send um, one who will be the deliverer. So, so from Genesis 3, God's going to send deliver. It, it, that, that promise re-established with a covenant to Abraham, and then it's re-established with Isaac, it's re-established with Jacob, and then it's re-established with Joseph. Jacob had 12-plus uh, children, 12 sons, and those 12 sons, Jacob's name gets changed to Israel, which is where we get the nation of Israel from, he, his name gets changed to Israel, and he has 12 sons, and his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those sons was named Levi. Another son was named Judah. And so when, we, when you talk about the Jewish people, you're referring to those that are descendants of Judah, who was a descendant of Israel. And so really the only intact group um, of, of uh, Israelites to this day that, that have a fairly pure um, genealogy are the Jews, which are traced back to Judah, which is traced back to Israel. You with me at all right now? Okay, several of you are sleeping already. I'm kidding. Um, that's the danger of having these seats in here. Uh, so, so we go from uh, Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has twelve sons, but the most notable is the youngest, whose name was no. Actually, second youngest, but his name was Joseph. Thank you. Joseph goes off into, he ends up, his brothers sell him off into slavery, and he ends up for, uh, he ends up in Egypt. And while he's in Egypt, when Joseph's in Egypt for that period of time, God provides salvation for the rest of his family. So through them, uh, you know, being really cruel and, and, and mean to Joseph, basically sending him out to die um, through his supposed death, perceived death, becomes their salvation. Joseph is a picture of Jesus. There we have in the end of another picture of Jesus in the end of the Old Testament, and I mean, at the end of the book of Genesis. And so Joseph provides salvation for his uh, family, and they come and they move, the whole family moves during a time of famine to Egypt, and through there, they become a mighty nation, which is a fulfillment of a prophecy, I believe, in Genesis chapter 12, that God had told Abraham that he was going to destroy the the peoples of the land he was living in right now but the time of the um amalekites i believe it is um or the canaanites had not yet come and so i'm going to send you off and your people are going to be in captivity for a period of time but they're going to be set free and one day they're going to come out and they're going to they'll then they'll bring about the destruction of these people here that are evil wicked people 
Okay, so that prophecy was given in Genesis, and it's fulfilled in Exodus, really in Joshua. And so, going back to it. So, the beginning, well, go back to that last line. There you go. All right, keep there for a little bit. So, we have the beginning, primeval history, patriarchal history, which leads us to the Exodus. And so, the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, really, in summary, is about the exit. It's about the exit, which is what Exodus means. It's the exit out of Egypt where God sets his people free and sends them to the promised land. They begin their journey to the promised land, which took a long time because of their disobedience, not because of their bad directions. And uh, if you were to summarize the book of Genesis into two chunks, the first through 20, God reveals his name and he establishes who Yahweh really is. I am that I am. I am the one who created everything, made everything, and I'm in control of everything. And then he goes from establishing his name to explains his nature. Here's how you can have a relationship with me. I'm going to give you a law, and I'm going to give you a tabernacle. The law is going to reveal why you can't have a relationship with me. The tabernacle is going to place, be a place where blood will be shed so that you can be reconciled to me so you, we can be friends again. Because you're too sinful, because of the law, that you have broken to be in my presence, but I'm going to give you a tabernacle so because of my love for you, I'm going to create a way that we can have a restored relationship, which again was a prophecy of one who would come, who would be the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the tabernacle, which is the place they went for sacrifices. You with me so far? So the name of the creator, the nature of the creator, how do we relate to him? But then within the book of Exodus, within the book, he reveals the law really specifically in um, a very technical way, and that is the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. And so if you notice on your sheet, Leviticus isn't in an order. It's at the end of the book of Exodus or right attached to it. And so we drop down from there, and this is a little off the screen, but, but Leviticus is a book about worship. It's a book about the law or worship. And so the first section is about the ordering of the uh, sacrifices. This is what the sacrificial system and this is what the feasts are going to look like. This is how you're going to relate to me. And so there's a whole lot of information about the sacrifices, which, Lord willing, one day we'll study this book, which is a scary book. But boy, until you look at Leviticus in a little more depth, man, when you do, it unlocks the New Testament, the book of Hebrews and other parts of the New Testament that makes so much more sense. And our understanding of what it really cost Jesus and what really happened in his death on the cross explodes. It becomes so much larger once we have an understanding of this book that's a scary book that we don't want to read normally. Um, so you have the ordering of the sacrifices. You have the ordination of the priests that are going to minister on behalf of the people in the sacrificial system. And then you have the observation of this group of people as they observe the, uh, the rules that were given. The priests on behalf of the people do the sacrifices and they build the tabernacle. The ta- tabernacle is actually built at that point. And so you go from Genesis to Exodus to Leviticus. And uh, let me pause there. And let's go back to the book of Job. Job is a book that we find in the poetry literature, but chronologically would, would line up with the life of Abraham. Job is a book about ultimately about perseverance. It, it, basically, the, the challenge of the book of Job is, is God worthy of worship apart from him giving you stuff? In other words, if, should we worship God even if he doesn't give you health and wealth and prosperity and a happy life? I mean, is God really worthy because that's what Satan asked Job. He's like, you know, I mean, God, uh, Satan asked God. He said, the only reason Job worships you and the only reason he's a righteous guy is because you pay him off. You give him stuff. You take that stuff away and he'll curse you. And so everything was taken away from Job. And Job continued to worship God. He continued to worship God. In the good times and bad, he said, you are God alone, as we sang earlier. Man, I, naked I came into this world, naked I returned. The Lord gave, the Lord took away Blessed be the name of the Lord. Everything I have, I didn't deserve. And so when he takes away from me, how can I get mad at God giving me something I didn't even deserve in the first place? So I'm just going to trust that he has a purpose and a reason. And God kind of brings it around towards the end of the book. He kind of sees the understanding and has an understanding of of God's um, purposes. Let me just say as a side note, Job also has, uh, a lot of people say, we're the dinosaurs in the Bible. I think in the book of Job has a record of a couple dinosaurs um, in, in Job, I think you see a dragon in there, and I think you see behemoth, which is a, uh, what I believe will be like a brontosaurus or a brachiosaurus or some giant dinosaur is in the book of Job. We'll get there later. So that's Job. Uh, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, which brings us to Numbers. So now that God has delivered them from Egypt, they've exited from Egypt, part of the Red Sea, 
brought them to Mount Sinai, given them the law of the tabernacle. Now he says, okay, now that you have the law in the tabernacle, you know how to relate to me through the book of Leviticus. Now I'm going to lead you to the promised land. I'm going to give you this land, a land flowing of milk and honey. And so let's, before we go, let's count, let's get a head count. And so they do a census in, in the beginning of the book of Numbers, and they do a head count of how many people are in each tribe, how many fighting men in each tribe. So they count the 12 tribes, how many fighting men in each tribe, and they come up with a number that's around 250,000 fighting men. Let's assume that, uh, that each of them, um, is it 250,000? I think that's right. 250,000, give or take. I might be wrong on that. No, I think it was 500,000. Let's say 500,000. Uh, so about 500,000 people. Let's assume everybody has... Um, Everybody's married, all those fighting men, and everybody has two kids. So 500,000, now we're up to two plus million people, okay? So it's a lot of people. That's a lot, it's a pretty big lunch line right there. Um, a lot of people to provide manna, food, for, you know, bread from heaven, water in the wilderness, and all that stuff. Supernatural, unbelievable that God leads them in the desert to the promised land, but they get there, and even though God had promised, I will give you this land, they send some spies in just to make sure that it's ready to be inhabited, and in the midst of doing that, they begin to doubt God. I don't know. God, these people, the giants in the land, are so big, there's no way. We've just been a bunch of farmers and slaves in Egypt for generations. How in the world are we going to defeat these armies in Canaan and in, in um, the, the area known now as Israel? We'll never be able to beat them. We'll never do it, except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And Joshua and Caleb said, there's, we can get in there, we can do this, and... and and yet they vote for the 10 rather than the two. The 10 went out. God judges the nation and says, okay, because of that, for the next 40 years, you guys are going to wander in the wilderness, in the desert, for 40 years until everybody from the age of 20 and above dies. And once you're all dead after 40 years, then I'm going to lead you in, and then the next generation will have the opportunity of inheriting this land that I promise that I will give you. But all of you who doubted me and lived in unbelief, you're not going to get to go to the promised land. Sorry. And so Numbers is the story of the numbering, them preparing to go in, and then them rejecting God and being um, judged by that. So you have, you have the first generation um, prepares, they fail, and then you have the second generation in chapters 26 to 36, the last 10 chapters, God does another head count. Here's how many people we got and, and prepares them to go in to the uh, promised land. Now, the first generation was given written on stone and revealed in the book of Leviticus, they were given the Ten Commandments and ultimately the three-letter word starts with the L, ends with the W, the law, okay? They were given the law. And, and, but this next generation, we're all pretty young, many of them not even born when the law was given. And so we probably have a need for something, right? We have a need for a review. And that's what Deuteronomy is. It, Deuteo, two, nami, law, so it's the second giving of the law. It's, the, it's, it's not a new law, but it's the reminder, it's the review. It's a little quiz before they go into the promised land. And so uh, the book of, of Deuteronomy, we can call it the review, I think is what I have up there. Yes, review. So the first four chapters, here's the past. Here's how we got here. 5 through 26, here's what we're doing here, and here's what's going on now. And then 26 through 34, here's what you need to know for the future. Here's what you need to know for the future. I, I want you to remember these things. I'm going to set before you death, and I'm going to set before you life. Choose death that you can live don't choose, uh, I'm sorry, choose life that you can live. Don't choose death. So you can follow my law and have life, or you can go your own ways and the ways of the people that worship false gods, and you can have death. It's a simple choice. It's your choice to make life or death. What do you want? They've got two options in front of you, and that's how the book ends with that laid out for them. So that's the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, now, let's jump down to the timeline, and let's look at how this fits in, in history. Now, you say, well, when, when did time begin? How old is the earth? Well, you come back next week, we'll talk about that. But, um, but let's just say the patriarchs lived around 2000 B.C. And we're given a lot of information in the book of Genesis, uh, all of the begets stuff, you know, so-and-so had so-and-so, and they lived for this many years, and then they had another kid, and then they lived for this many years, and then they had... And if you put that timeline together, these, they were living for like 600-something, 700... Um, you know, lots of years, 900, 900 years, almost a thousand years. So Abraham, Adam would have known most of his grandchildren, you know, and great-grandchildren, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren. Um, so th they lived for a long time and they overlapped in the times that they lived, but, but it lays down the math for us. And so if you go from Abraham 
all the way back to Adam, you come with a date of around uh, 4,000, 2,000, I'm sorry, 4,000 um, to maybe 6,000 B.C., but probably about 4,000 plus B.C. would have been the time that Abraham or Adam would have lived according to the dating that's given in the book of Genesis. Again, we'll talk about that more later and what the implications of that are. But nonetheless, the beginning of time, then we have the patriarchs. We, we, can, we can date that 2000 B.C. And then from the patriarchs, you have the Exodus. Now, that's a whole other story, and this is a major pet peeve of mine. But please write down circle somewhere in your Bible, forehead, wherever, um, that the Exodus happened in 1446 B.C. Okay, that is the date that the Bible gives us in the book of Judges and in the book of uh, 1 Kings. There's two places that give us some tools to dating when the Exodus happened. And if you date the Exodus based upon the biblical evidence, you're going to end up with a date of 1446 would have been the day that they the, the year that they left from Egypt. Now, this is incredibly vital because if you don't go by this date, then it throws off the dating of the rest of the Bible. There wasn't enough time for judges to happen. There wasn't enough time for a lot of things to happen. And it takes prophecies in the Old Testament and shifts them into historical books. They're just saying they're pretending to be prophecies, but they're really not true. And they're written by other people way after, and it's all the rest of the Bible is just not true. And so if, how many of you guys saw Prince of Egypt or the Ten Commandments movie? Okay, Who was the pharaoh of the Exodus in those movies? Ramses was the pharaoh of the Exodus. According to 1446 B.C. and the biblical dating, Ramses was not the pharaoh of the Exodus. Ramses lived about 1200 B.C. And so if Ramses is the pharaoh of the Exodus, we have a lot of problems with the Bible. But fortunately, there's tons of biblical and archaeological evidence outside of the Bible that proves and gives evidences to the 1446 B.C. But liberal uh, scholars want to do their best to distort the Word of God and to discredit the Word of God and so because they approach Scripture already not believing it, they have to find reasons for why they don't believe it and why their lack of belief in it is true. And so they have created a dating system that proves their point, but it refuses to look at the evidence that we already find in archaeology, much less the biblical evidence. So it all has to do with your perspective. And their perspective, when they look at Scripture, is already that there's no way that this could be true. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. I don't have time to get into that. But um, I'll give you a, let me give you 15 second definition of why they have this presupposition. Liberal scholars, they approach everything with an evolutionary view. And just like evolution biologically, things go from simplicity to complexity. They assume that religions also go from simplicity to complexity. And so because religions go from simplicity to complexity, then we have people worshiping the earth, and then they go from worship the earth to where you have them worshiping one God, and then one God that they have this complex uh, worship system known as the book of Leviticus and the law given in the Jewish, to the Jewish people, they would say because of their presuppositions, they've already made their mind up, everything evolves, simplicity, complexity, they believe there's no way that we could have as complex a religious system as what we find in the law at 1446. They have to move the date further down um, so it was not as old because they already are assuming that nothing you can't have something that complex. And what they forget is that there is a God and he can reveal his ways whenever he wants to. It doesn't matter how religion evolves or doesn't evolve. God has revealed himself in world history. And so their presupposition, they, they don't leave room for supernatural and for the, for the possibility of God stepping into that. Okay? And so they assume wrongly that everything evolves, law evolves, religion evolves, people evolve, things evolve, everything evolves. Morality evolves. Morality. What's right today might, you know, what's wrong today might be right in 10 years. That's what's, what's happening in our world right now, where things that we would have said clearly are sinful 50 years ago, they're saying right now, we're voting on them and saying that these things should be legal. Why? Because they presuppose that everything evolves and changes and there's no truth that's established that was way longer than 15 seconds sorry um well let's move along so we have um so with the timeline we have the patriarchs 2000 um 1446 the exodus it's going to speed up here so put your seatbelts on uh and then we go into the period of the judges period which happens over 200 almost 300 years the judges period and then the the israelites say you know what everybody else has a king but we don't have a king we want a king why can't we have a king? Everybody else has a king. And God says to them, look, if you get a king, you're going to be taxed 
They're going to have to pay for his palace and the armies, and, the, and you're going to have to pay tax. You might have to pay like 10% of your income as taxes. You know, wow, that'd be horrible. You know, we pay way more than that in, in taxation. Um, but, but so they, they're begging for a king, and so he finally says, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he establishes Saul as the first king. And Saul reigns for 40 years, and Saul started off decent and went downhill and was not a really good king. But it's the establishment of the kingdom happens in the reign of, or the beginning. The preparation of the kingdom is happening during this time of Saul's life, which leads us to David, and he establishes the kingdom. And then Solomon, and under Solomon, it's brought to a level of wealth and prosperity that is never seen from that point to today, never seen before. The richest, wisest king that's ever lived. And then after that, the kingdom is divided. And so 40 years for each of those, and then the kingdom is divided in 931 B.C., and then we'll get to the rest of that in a minute. So let's jump from there back to our historical timeline, uh, our, our historical books. So in our chronology of the Old Testament, we left off with the book of Deuteronomy, and now that leads us to the book of Joshua. Now, the first five books were written by Moses, and the rest of these were written by different authors, but Joshua likely was the writer, uh, the, was the one who wrote the book of Joshua. And Joshua was when the, the next generation that was numbered at the end of the book of Deuteronomy or the end of uh, Numbers, they're going to get to go in the promised land. So they go in and they conquer. And so it's known as the battle, uh, the book of conquest or the book of victory. Remember the song, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho? Okay, we'll sing that. We're going to sing it in the closing here in a minute. Um, I'm just, do you get, can, you, can you whip that out? Can we do that? No. Um, special request. So uh, it's the book of victory and joshua's name means yahweh is salvation god is salvation and so god brings and he deliver he he let he uh delivers the land of canaan to the people and it becomes the land of israel and to this day now there was a break in the but this day now you would go and, and it's it's most of that region is is known as israel and so that's the book of victory and uh then we have the book of judges judges is a book summary in summary um, we, we know in the book of Judges, the people did what was right in their own eyes. And so because of that, it is a book of defeat. It's a book of defeat. And so Joshua, he leads them into the land. They've conquered it. And, and Joshua passes on to the next generation. Hey, you need to teach the word. Don't let anybody depart from it. Make sure. And, and they do that. But then the next generation doesn't pass the baton. And they don't disciple the next generation. And so there comes a one generation removed from Joshua. There's a generation of people that, that don't know God's word, and they do what's right in their own eyes. They do whatever they think is right. And so there's a period of defeat that happens for hundreds of years. And the book of Judges, boy, it's one of the most interesting books in the Bible. Uh, if, you, if you want young boys to get into reading the Bible, let them read the book of Judges. There's just some pretty crazy stuff that happens in the book of Judges. Um, some awesome stories that I, I would believe are, are true stories. And, and so that, that's the fulfillment of the book of, I mean, the, the um, book of Judges leads us to First uh, and Second Samuel, but there's one more book that happens in the context. You can't see it on the sheet, but if you drop down from uh, Judges, there's the book of Ruth, and I'll, just for we'll come to it in a second. But Ruth is about redemption. It's about the fact that God is faithful. And the summary statement for the book of Ruth is redemption. And the story of Ruth and Naomi happens in the context of the period of Judges, which is why chronologically the book is right there lined up. Uh, so we go from Joshua to uh, um, to Judges, Judges to Ruth, and then that brings us to First and Second Samuel. First and Second Samuel were originally one book, and First Samuel is the story of Saul, and it's the preparation of the kingdom. Second Samuel is a story of David, and it's the establishment of the kingdom. So we call uh, First Samuel. We're summarizing as kingdom is prepared, preparation, kingdom preparation, and then kingdom established, kingdom prepared, kingdom established, and then First Kings is the kingdom is divided. Because King Solomon becomes the king, and but, but Solomon has one pro major problem. He's too smart for his own good, and he, he stores up too many wives, too many horses for battle. So he gets military might, wives, and his wives carry him off in his heart into serving and worshiping false gods. And because of that, God brings a judgment upon Solomon and says, because you have not stayed true to trusting me and worshiping me, now you're going to... Um, the kingdom's going to not be lost during your lifetime because of the promises I made to your father, David. I'm going to continue to give you peace. But after you die, kingdom will be divided. And, and everything you've built will, will go away because of your sin. And so, uh, interesting message for us, that the, the things we do with our life do affect other people. And my life does have an impact on the generations that follow me. And so, 
Uh, so first, second, first Kings is about that time of division. And then second Kings brings us to a time of, law, of loss. Kingdom is lost. And so in 722 BC, there's not a lot of numbers you have to know of the Old Testament, but a couple things that help you to remember. I would try to remember the date 1446 BC. That's important. It helps you understand the flow of events. Uh, another important date would be um, 722 BC. And that is when Israel splits and it becomes the north and the south. The north is Israel, the south is Judah. And 10 tribes go north, two tribes go south or stay south. And Israel falls in 722 to the Assyrian army under the leadership of Sennacherib. And in 586, a couple hundred years later, finally Judah falls. God preserves Judah for several hundred years more, but then they finally fall because they continue worshiping false gods and refusing to, to worship God or to follow God alone. And because of that, uh, they're destroyed and they're carried off into exile in Babylon. And so there's a period of 70 years where they're in exile in Babylon known as the exilic or the period of exile or the exilic period. And after that, they're brought back to the promised land. And that's where I, Ezra, Nehemiah, and uh, Esther come in. So breaking out from this, this brings us to the poetic books, the kingdom period, and then we have the poetic books. So we, Ruth, we already talked about. So within the life of David and, and after, and I cut one psalm from Moses, but Psalms, ultimately, most of them, the bulk of the Psalms line up with the life of David. And so Psalms is really a book about praise, about praising and worshiping God. Um, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, which you can't see on the very bottom. Proverbs, I would summarize by saying it's a book of wisdom. Uh, Ecclesiastes is a book of vanity. You can have everything the world offers you. Pursue it, run after it. Riches, immorality, you know, whatever you want, whatever you know, pleases you, makes you happy, run after it with everything. Else. What you're going to find is it's all empty. It's just going to be vanity. It's going to be waste. It'll just be a waste. It's going to be like what's left after you pop a bubble. Nothing's left. And so that, that's what Ecclesiastes teaches. And then Song of Solomon is ultimately a book of love. It shows us God's love for us, but also gives us a foundation for the perfect relationship. What does what, what the ideal marriage look like? And, and Song of Solomon's got some awesome stuff. We'll do a marriage retreat someday and we'll go through the book of Song of Solomon. But it's a book of love. Uh, so, uh, and then second, first and second Chronicles goes with, uh, really from Saul, Samuel all the way to Kings. And it's a, it's a commentary on those four books are summarized in these two books. And it's kind of the divine commentary on what happened with the establishment and division of the kingdom. But it mainly focuses on the, the nation of Judah through this whole period. So it's kind of the divine commentary, uh, which is why we have that phrase there. All right, so let's go from there back to the timeline, and then we're gonna, we just got two more spots and we're done. Uh, Samuel, I'm sorry, uh, Saul, so 1050 BC, God establishes uh, the kingdom, and then the kingdom's divided in 931 BC. You have the division, and then you have the northern kingdom of Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam. You don't have to write that down, but just in case you're curious, he leads off Israel. And by the way, Israel becomes, they, they get destroyed by Assyria. But what Assyria does is they intermarry with them and they just kind of dilute the people of Israel into their people. They intermarry. And so the Israelites become known as this half-breed group of people that they'd established their temple, not in Jerusalem, but in, uh, in the region of Samaria. And they become known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans. So in the New Testament, the Samaritans are what used to be the Israelites. And so they're looked down upon because they're the ones that, that, that broke off from Judah. They no longer worship God in Jerusalem. They had their own mountain and their own temple that they worship God. And they worship false gods. And so the Jewish people hated the Samaritans, never wanted to walk through their territory, which is why it was so amazing when Jesus went and pursued the Samaritan woman at the well. And he went through with the, with the gospel, proclaiming the gospel in the kingdom, that the kingdom was at hand through the, the region of Samaria. The Good Samaritan story. It helps you understand the background of those New Testament stories based on the fact that these people were, they're, they're the Israelites that got destroyed by Assyria and, and became half-breeds. Okay? And so, which leads us to Judah. Judah was the southern kingdom, and they continued to have Jerusalem, the temple, and they continued to worship God there, but they often were going off in the false gods. They had some periods of re revival and renewal, but ultimately, um, because of their sin, they eventually were uh, destroyed in Jerusalem in the beautiful Temple of Solomon with all of its gold coverings and just wealth was destroyed to the ground by 
by Babylon in Nebuchadnezzar. And after that, uh, in 586, there was a period of 70 years. Jump to the next slide there, Megan. Um, and after this uh, 70 years of Babylonian captivity, God leads them back to Jerusalem. There's so much awesome history in this, and I wouldn't have time to get into it. But the last three books of the history are Ezra, where the temple is rebuilt and the hearts of the people are, re- are brought back to the law. The law, they find the law and they dust it off. They find it hidden in, in some boxes and they dust it off and they read it. With everybody standing, they build this platform and they read the whole five books of the law as everybody stands. Nobody goes anywhere. They just stand for the whole time. You think I'm talking a long time. Could you imagine the whole law being read, read out there in there and they don't have a PA system? And they have people every so hundred, you know, several hundred yards that would hear it, and then they would recite it to the chunk of people behind them who would recite it to the chunk of people behind them. And so it was crazy. And they did this for a whole day as they read the law to them. And so he rebuilds the hearts. Nehemiah rebuilds the law, the law. I'm, I'm sorry, the walls and the lives of the people. And then Esther happens in the context of the book of Ezra, and Esther is a, really a story about God's mercy. She makes that famous statement: "If I perish, then I perish." And, and, you know, who knows, Esther, maybe you were born for such a time as this. And so she just trusts God in, in the midst of all adversity. And God shows his mercy on Esther and his people. And so that is the end of the historical, which leads us to the prophets. And then we're done. So the prophets, I'm not going to give you a one word summary of each one. But I do want you to understand the chronology of the, the prophets. And so here's how the prophets go. Some of them prophesy to Judah. Some of them prophesy to Israel, to the nation of Israel. Now, for time, I'm not going to delineate who prophesies to who. Some, in fact, there's even a couple that prophesy to all nations and a couple that prophesy to both. But there's, there's a variety of them. And so I'm not going to go into the details a lot, but I want you to see the three chunks of time that they prophesied in. So the biggest group of the prophets prophesied before the Babylonian captivity. Okay, So they're known as the pre exile or exilic prophets and so you have isaiah jeremiah hosea joel amos obadiah jonah micah nahum and habakkuk pre-exilic prophets now the little line up there is to show you uh isaiah and jeremiah are known as the major prophets the other ones are the minor prophets now that's no we're not talking about major league minor league we're talking about uh the major prophets were long prophecies the minor prophets were smaller prophecies that's really the difference between them is the length of the prophecies and so Major prophets and minor prophets before the exile is this list. Then you have those that prophesied during the exile while they're in Babylon. And those are Ezekiel and Daniel. And then Jeremiah wrote a prophecy after the fall of Jerusalem. And it was a funeral dirge known. It was a lament over God's destruction because of the sin of the the Jewish people. God's destruction of Jerusalem. And it was known as Lamentations. So Lamentations is a sad book. But it has this awesome one verse in the midst of it that says, um, if I get my brain there. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Everything's been destroyed. Everything's lost. But the steadfast love of the Lord, even though you, you've, you're reaping what you've sown, never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Man, there's a nugget in the book of Lamentations that is beautiful. That God's mercies are new day after day after day. Just hang in there. Just hang in there. God's steadfast love never ceases. God doesn't say, you know what, I don't, I just don't love you anymore. Sorry. No, it never, he never will stop loving you. His mercies, they never come to an end. They're new every morning. It's a book of Lamentations. And then we have the book of um, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai, Haggai, or Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. A lot of these have prophecies about the Messiah coming and um, being born, the, the, about Jesus being born, the birth of Christ, John the Baptist, all that is in some of these prophecies. But these are the post-exilic prophecies, or prophets, because they prophesied during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, during the rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the walls, after the exile. And the last time God speaks to his people is in the book of Malachi, and that is around 400 B.C., and that leads us to, if you can you go back one slide? That leads us to a period 
of the silent years, the 400 silent years, and there is silence until there comes this one guy serving in the temple one day. He had his lot, and he was going to go in there to, to put the incense on the altar of incense inside the tab- temporal, temple, and his name was uh, Zechariah. And Zechariah, sitting in the temple, worshiping God, praying, probably praying for his wife because she'd been barren and unable to have children and just grieving over the fact Elizabeth never had a kid and just real sad around her house and just, oh, good night, what's going on? He's praying about the future of Israel and the fact that they're in this captivity of, uh, or they're, they're being um, dominated by the Roman government and all these issues and just praying for God to send a deliverer. And suddenly an angel speaks. Zechariah, I've heard your prayers and I'm going to give you a son. His name's going to be called John. He says, are you, what? Are you serious? I don't believe it. And he said, okay, because you don't believe me, you're going to be mute. You can't talk until he's born. So don't doubt God. And uh, so he, uh, he gets judged. For that. And shortly after that, an angel reveals himself to, to Mary and says, um, hey, sweet Mary, young lady, godly little girl who loves Jesus and, and or loves God and, and knows the word of God, I'm going to put a little baby in your, uh, you know, inside you. And, and, and he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be the deliverer. And she's blown away. She's not even married. And he places, and that's the beginning of the fulfillment of that that had been prophesied all the way from Genesis 3 through the book of Isaiah, through the, the minor prophets, through the prophecies of David, all through the Old Testament suddenly becomes realized in the birth of Christ in the 400 silent years are over and we have the coming of the Messiah, his life, death around 30 A.D., and last word spoken in 95 B.C., I mean A.D. So what, what are we living in now? What part of the Bible? Somebody once said it, we're in Acts 29. Because <laughs> Acts 28 is, is the last chapter in the book of Acts, and, and we're after that. And so we're waiting for Jesus to return again. And that's the story of the Bible.